Well, it's a privilege to meet with you today, and I thank you for watching this or listening, as the case may be. Thank you for being diligent to do that. We are going over our Sunday School lesson for September 19th of 2021, and it still doesn't feel like fall, does it? So hopefully uh, we'll get a little bit of rain and some cooler weather uh, before too much time goes by. And that also means that uh, as we get into fall, you know, the holidays really are just around the corner. So uh, uh, teachers start thinking about and making some plans for fellowships and things like that that you want to have for your class. I think people are kind of hungry for that after the lockdown and everything, and, and they'll enjoy getting together. I uh, also think about, you know, with Sunday school, um, how much outreach are we doing? And I want to encourage you, whether you are a teacher listening to this or whether you're a Sunday school member watching this to, to keep up, uh, let's start talking to our classes about outreach. Start talking to them about maybe reclaiming some people who have fallen away and uh, call them up, talk to them, find out why they're not coming and uh, if there's anything that we can do and tell them that you'll be praying for them and that you love them and miss them. And then uh, think about this. Uh, being a Sunday school teacher is not only about coming prepared to teach whoever shows up. I mean, there's really not a whole lot we can do about that. I understand that. But at the same time, I don't think that's an excuse for not trying to get new people in and encouraging your people to invite friends and relatives and neighbors and, you know, people like that. And that needs to be a, a big emphasis. So I would appreciate it if uh, you would do that, teachers. Don't take it all on yourself, but uh, encourage your class to do that. And if there are people that they're concerned about, you know, make some assignments, go make some visits, make some contacts. And in this age where it is arguably easier to make contact with folks than ever before. I mean, through social media, through, you know, cell phone, text, email, all of those kind of things, not to mention personal visits even. Uh, that kind of stuff shouldn't really be an issue uh, for us, not in this day and age. So uh, think about that, pray about that. And I would really encourage you to do that. We could use that. Your class could use that. And I don't know of anything that makes a class more exciting than to see new people in it. And I've been teaching Sunday school and doing this for a long, long time. And uh, I, like most of us, would like to think that uh, I have such a magnetic personality and uh, teaching style that they're just going to flock in to hear me teach. Truth of the matter is, I watch the class get excited when there are new people in there. And that means also you need to kind of teach the people in your class how to do some things that just show good hospitality. Um, you know, you need somebody to meet them, somebody to uh, maybe make room for them. It means that everybody doesn't sit near the back. That kind of irks me anyway, as you know, because uh, when people come in late, and they need a place to sit. They don't want to walk all the way down front. And we don't want to discourage um, people from coming and just saying, well, I'm late, so I won't come at all. So kind of uh, try to have people set up near the front and arrange your class where 
if they walk in the door, they're not walking in where you're standing in front of, you know, this crowd of people. And uh, try to get people uh, to think about in a strange place, in a strange building, they don't really know where everything is and they might get kind of mixed up when they go up the stairs and down a hallway and have some people in your class that are willing and ready to uh, walk them to the auditorium or take them back to the nursery if they have kids there or show them where the restrooms are or anything like that and invite them to sit with you during church because when you come in and people are kind of scattered out, you don't know if you're taking somebody else's chair or not. And it's all about just hospitality. And so uh, if there's nothing else we can do, we can be welcoming, hospitable people and um, so just take that and um, I started to say put it in your pipe and smoke it but uh, we don't smoke so anyway think about that and uh, see what happens okay now we're doing our catechism again and the question this week since we are redeemed by grace alone through faith alone where does this faith come from okay again I'm going to make, if I were a betting man, um, man, I've already talked about smoking and betting. The only thing left is drinking. But uh, if I were a betting man, I would uh, put my money down on the fact that most of you and most of our people are going to be able to answer this question uh, fairly easily. And uh, we've been taught for a long time here that uh, faith comes from God. But I wonder if we have thought about that in a while, because sometimes I've noticed that Christian people get a little angry at lost people. And I don't know why we do that. We should expect them to be lost. We should expect them to be crude. We should expect them to be comfortable in sin. And uh, we shouldn't expect them to act like save people or whatever, because if they do, then maybe we're just moralizing them and we're not really seeing them being born again. Maybe that's why the Southern Baptist Convention has, uh, depending on what statistics you look at, some 17 million members. That's a lot of people, a lot of people, but only about half of them ever show up for anything in the church and only about half of that half show up regularly for church. Well, maybe it's because we've taught people how to be moral and we've taught them how to uh, have success in life, but we really haven't seen them born again. And uh, so maybe we need to go over this just to remind ourselves of where lost people are. I don't care if it's your son or your daughter in your home. If they're lost, they're lost. I pray every day for my grandchildren to be saved. They're a little young for that right now, but it doesn't mean I'm not concerned about it. And um, when uh, the time comes, I want them to trust Christ because they're as depraved as anybody else. It doesn't matter if you're married to a lost person who treats you well and seems to be really good. They are dead in trespasses and sins and totally depraved. And the same thing is true for your neighbor and anyone else. So whenever lost people act like lost people, we should not be surprised by that, but we actually ought to expect it and um, take it as a, a way to pray for them. Now, here's what the answer is. All the gifts we receive from Christ, we receive through the Holy Spirit. 
I, I think we could probably stop there if they go on. That, that's really true of everything. Nobody understands, nobody comes to the Lord, nobody um, gets it at all without the work of the Holy Spirit. And we forget that sometimes. And that's why if I were an Arminian, I wouldn't bother to pray for the lost. The, uh, the whole system of Arminianism kind of teaches that, you know, God's done everything that he can and he has good intentions. And now he's sitting back with his fingers crossed, just saying, please, please, won't somebody come? And I sure hope somebody comes. Can you imagine? That's a horrible, horrible plan. But if you believe in the sovereignty of God, then you understand that for a lost person, we don't know who's going to get saved and who's not going to get saved. And um, in, in my opinion, as long as there's breath, there's hope from my perspective, from my perspective, okay? Doesn't change God or God's plan or anything. Just same from my perspective. And so it makes sense for me with the theology that I have to pray for lost people because God can actually save people and he will actually save all of his elect. So let's uh, go on. All the gifts we receive from Christ, we receive through the Holy Spirit, including faith itself. Now, think about a verse that we kind of looked at uh, a few weeks ago in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Okay? Now notice... Paul did not say anything about what we do. He didn't say anything about our prayer. He didn't say anything about us walking the aisle or coming down front or being baptized or anything like that at all. It said that it's, this is all predicated on this one thing. When the goodness and the loving kindness, that's a covenant term, of God our Savior appeared. And I want you to think back uh, where we were a few weeks ago when we talked about the conversion of the Apostle Paul. And Paul was on the way to Damascus and he wasn't asking God, oh, please show yourself to me. Let me see you. He wasn't doing anything like that at all. And he wasn't going to Damascus because he had heard that he could find God there. There were people there that could tell him about uh, Christ and salvation. Paul had no idea that he even needed to be saved. In fact, as a Pharisee, and in his own words, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, you know, to him, I'm as saved as anybody has ever been. And he would put himself on the same level with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and those people because he was doing everything that he was supposed to do. And in fact, he probably had the idea that even going to Damascus to round up these Christians or followers of the way, that was going to give him extra points because he was protecting the tradition of the fathers and protecting Judaism and guarding, safeguarding the law of God. And uh, all of a sudden, what happens? Jesus shows up. And uh, that's what Paul is talking about here that happened with all of us, not in the same way. Okay. I've never been on horseback or donkey back, whatever Paul was riding, to head to Damascus, never been to Damascus, never been on a road that led to Damascus, as far as I know. But uh, what happened? Jesus appeared. And you'll find that there are different descriptions of salvation. And sometimes when you think about uh, the phrase born again, 
that always makes me think of the gestation period. Uh, there is a child in the mother's womb nine months approximately before their birth, right? And uh, there's time the child has to grow and has to develop before it's ready for life outside of mom in the, the real world, as we would call it. And so we do have to understand that in salvation, the Lord may be working on somebody in ways we can't see for a long time before they're ever actually born again. Maybe you have a testimony like that, somebody that prayed for you. I remember when I was pastor at First Baptist Chelsea, there was a guy there that we really wanted to be saved and we prayed for him regularly. And I remember it was Mother's Day, I think in... Um, 1990, something like that, 89 or 90, when I gave the invitation and John Martin, a big hulk of a man, just big, strong, powerful farmer. And he comes walking down the aisle with tears in his eyes. And he took me by the hand and he said, Pastor, I'm ready. And I said, ready for what, John? And he goes, I know that I need to be saved and I'm ready. I'm ready for it. I uh, said, wait right here. And I went and got John's brother, Joe, and Joe was kind of a lay preacher and a, a tremendous Bible teacher, well known all over town and in that area. And I said, Joe, come lead your brother John to Christ. And I'll never forget that old man looked up and he looked at me and looked back at his brother, jumped up out of that pew and they went over and knelt at the steps there. And you could see while Joe was taking his Bible and going through scripture, sharing with his biological brother, John, there were tears that were falling down on his Bible while he did that. And John Martin that day confessed Jesus Christ as his savior and Lord. And that was an exciting time. Well, when I was telling the congregation about it, I said, you know, we've been praying. We've been here three years. And uh, I said, I've never heard my wife pray even for food or anything that she doesn't mention John Martin and ask for his salvation. And then I said, Brother Joe, how long have you been praying for your brother to be saved? And his words were, and this is almost verbatim, with God is my witness every day since the day that I was saved for 42 years. You know, uh, if God plans to save somebody, he doesn't do it according to our prayer. We all know that. I don't know that anybody was praying for the Apostle Paul and yet God saved him, right? I don't know that anybody was praying for the thief on the cross and yet he was saved. So we understand that this is the work of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, think about stories like I just told and how Sammy and I and our church then got to be involved in the eternal purpose of God in saving John Martin. We got to join forces with a man who had been praying for his brother for 42 years. You think there is going to be some fruit from that? You think there's going to be some rewards for that? You think that if faith pleases God, that there was an awful lot of faith on behalf of Joe Martin for his brother John. I mean, that was a tremendous, tremendous thing. I got to go back and preach John Martin's funeral. And that was a, a blessing as well. Uh, and I don't take any credit for any of that. 
because I can't take any credit for that. Well, you were the preacher. Yeah, but I didn't come up with the gospel and I didn't come up with the word of God that I preach. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So it wasn't hearing my words that led John Martin to Christ. It was hearing the word of God. And hopefully I didn't get in the way or mess it up. You see what I'm saying? And so the same thing is true today and in all situations. Everything that is done through Christ, every benefit we receive from salvation comes through the Holy Spirit. And it's not because of works done by us in righteousness. It's not the prayer we prayed. It's not our sincerity, even though I do believe you're sincere if you're truly saved. But that's not what saves you. We've got to get it right. It's not something done by us. It's not even something done to us. It's something that was done for us 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary. And God, according to his sovereign plan, his spirit works within us to bring us to that time. And some people get saved the first time they hear the gospel. And uh, other people, it takes a long, long time. There's a gestation period. And we can't always see what's happening. We can't always tell what's happening. And so what do we do? Just faithfully plant and water. But then Paul tells us that those who plant are nothing and those who water are nothing, but it's God who gives the increase. Well, that's a humbling thing to think about, isn't it? This is all of God all the way through. Sometimes the metaphor is used of a a tree or something like that that is growing. Well, you think about when you put seed in the ground and uh, you come back the next day. One thing that I know, I've grown enough stuff, you're not going to see anything useful the next day. In fact, you probably won't see anything at all. It takes time for that seed to sprout and then for that sprout to come up above the earth and then for it to continue to grow and get the right amount of water and fertilizer and sunlight all of those kind of things until it is ready to be mature and bear fruit. And there are some people that are like that. Seeds are planted and they're planted a long time ago and they're planted, uh, you know, in, in ways that we don't always see or even know about. And we give the guy that leads somebody to the Lord, the Billy Graham type person, we give them all the credit. Boy, they preach and it was powerful. You can't really say that. Now, hopefully it was, but you can't really say that because you don't know who planted the seed and who watered the seed and how long that's been going on. It was just their time and they bear their fruit in their time. And so when you think about whether it's the metaphor of planting or whether it's the metaphor of thinking about gestation, what do we do when we talk about a baby that's being born? Well, we count their age from the day they were born, the day they took their first breath, right? And that seemed like an automatic, uh, instantaneous event. I know mothers don't think so. But anyway, the baby is unborn and then it's born. We don't count all of the labor. We don't count the gestation period. They're just born. We call it a new life. Well, actually, that life has been there for some time and been developing and growing, but now it's out. We all celebrate and we celebrate that day of birth for the rest of that child's life. We celebrate people that have been uh, around for a hundred years and had a hundred birthdays and we still blow out candles and sing happy birthday and give them presents 
and celebrate all of that because that is kind of an instantaneous event. I was unborn, now I'm born. So when you think about all of that, put it all together and realize that even if you were a part of it, you had nothing to do with it. That had to be the work of God. And we could go back and think about this. I could plant seeds until I die. But if I plant them in the wrong way and I plant them in the wrong soil and I plant them at the wrong season of the year, I'm not going to get any fruit. And even if I do everything right by the book, the right time, the right soil, the right fertilizers, the right amount of watering and all of that, if God doesn't give the increase, those plants are never going to grow. And in the same way, that's the way it is with our witnessing. Now, don't let that discourage you. Let it encourage you because God is doing things that you can't see. And you never know when you're planting a seed. You never know when you are really watering a seed. And you never know when the harvest is going to come in. And by the way, if you get an opportunity to be on the har- in on the harvest, give God the glory. Don't take it for yourself because that was not really of you. Okay, so all of this happens according to the work of the Holy Spirit. Now notice the answer goes on to say, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out richly on us through Christ Jesus, our Savior. Do you get that? That's the word of God. And when we think about what that means, this is coming from God to us. And if we're not made ready for it, it, it's nothing. Nothing happens. But when God has prepared us and prepared our hearts and worked in us, then notice all of this happens and it's according to the mercy of God and according to the power of God and according to the decree of God. Okay? So even those of us who are saved, I mean, this gets worse. Not only can we not take credit for people who get saved, we can't even take any credit for our own salvation. This is of the Lord. Familiar scripture, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. Okay. King James says, and that not of yourselves. What, what is he talking about? What's not of yourselves? Even the faith you have to believe and the faith you presently have in Christ is a gift from God. He goes on. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You know, when we get to heaven, I don't know uh, what you think about heaven, but when we get there and we see Jesus, and maybe we've had a very, very fruitful and productive life, are we going to walk around heaven strutting and boasting about all of that? No, not at all. Why? Because we didn't do any of it. Even the very best of us have to come and lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. We didn't do it. This is all of him and by him and for him. And we can't seem to get that through our thick heads. This is the work of God. So if you know anything about the scripture, that's not you. That's Jesus. And if you don't know scripture like other people do, and you think, well, they're just smarter than me. They're just better than me. They're more anointed than me or something, whatever it is that people say. Stop it. That's not true. If you're a born again believer, you 
will be able to learn the Word of God and you can mature and grow and be a faithful follower of Christ. Quit putting it on people. It's the work of God. So let's talk about this. And let's understand, as uh, I'm, I'm sure we already know, we were spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 talks about that. Dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. We followed the course of the world and we were following, you ready for this, the prince of the power of the air. And then Paul says, kind of a by the way moment, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. I mean, I guess you could technically say, what life does a lost person have if they're spiritually dead? Apparently it's demonic life. And so again, why should we be surprised when they act like it? And we should be patient with them and we should let them know and, and we should know ourselves that what they really need is the gospel. And he goes on to say, that's where we all lived and we were in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. I mean, no self-control, no morality. And we were by nature, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And then two words that change everything, but God. And it goes on to tell us that he loved us so greatly that he made us alive he came to us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And then he did something amazing, raised us up to be seated with him in heavenly places. In other words, you're a part of the royal family now, and you have the privilege of being up there with the Lord. And that's even now in a spiritual positional sense, you are with the Lord. And all of this is because of the kindness of his grace. Be sure and read all of those and meditate on them and think about them and kind of think about where you were before you were saved, whether you knew it or not, whether you realized it or not. This is the truth. This is where you were. This is where God found you. And think about what that means. And if he can save you, he can save anybody. Now, why does this matter? Because dead people produce nothing. They can't even for themselves. Take the most selfish person in the world and let them die, put them in a coffin, and you can try to appeal to them with every appeal you could think of to appeal to their selfishness, and they can't do anything about it. You could ask them to help you. You could ask them to do something for you, and they couldn't do it. Dead people cannot produce anything and they can't even for themselves. Now that is so foundational to get into our hearts. So understand that as you look at the world around you. That's why you need to pray for their salvation. Number two, we did not seek God. And I've got in parentheses, nor could we. I mean, when you read Romans chapter three, verse 18, and he quotes from uh, Psalms, I believe, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. I mean, you could tell a lost person with, apart from the work of Christ to your blue in the face and do a brilliant job explaining it, and they would go, huh, yeah, okay, and walk away unmoved and unchanged because no one understands and no one seeks for God. You're not giving them what you want. This is the problem with so many churches saying we've got to meet the needs of the people so that they'll come to church and tailor our services and everything we do to their felt needs. 
Well, here's the problem. They don't understand what their need is. It's what we just read. And they don't seek for God. In other words, the things that they are looking for are not the things that we were equipped by God to give them. They don't even know what they need and they don't seek for God. In fact, it gets worse. They've all turned aside and together they have become worthless so that no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave and they use their tongues to deceive and the venom of asps, that's a snake, by the way, is under their lips and their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. That's a sad place to be. And so not seeking God is to understand that he's the one that seeks us. Think about the parables. When the lost sheep is out there, the sheep doesn't go, where's the shepherd? Where's the shepherd? Where's the shepherd? Oh, I need to find the shepherd. The shepherd's lost. No, the shepherd's not lost. He's in the fold. And he makes a count and he said, there's one more. I'll go get the sheep. The shepherd seeks after the sheep. The woman with the lost coin, it wasn't the coin who found the, uh, the woman. It was the woman who found the coin. Think about all the metaphors that we know. And that's why uh, it's kind of fun when somebody says, well, I found the Lord. Oh, really? I didn't know he was lost. We didn't find him. He found us. No fear before their eyes tells us that we were beyond reformation. It wasn't just a matter of turning over a new leaf. In fact, that no understanding in there tells us we were beyond education. It wasn't a matter of just giving them the facts and now they'll know it and they'll do something with it. They couldn't understand it. And like Isaiah, we were unclean and we came from an unclean culture. And the bottom line, there's no fear of God. And why does this matter? Because we go to work every day to get what we want as well as what we need. But if you take a young child and you tell them, okay, you're three now, take care of yourself. That child will be dead before long because they don't know what they need and what they want is always the wrong thing. And when we think about lost people and we try to explain that to them, until God does something in their life, they don't really know what it is that they want and they really don't know what they really need. And that's why they look for uh, everything in all the wrong places. And uh, so we've got to understand that. They just can't do it. And number three, notice that how we got to God is that God drew us. In John chapter 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So when you think about us having no interest and no ability... God graciously intervenes. And with all of us, there was that time when God appeared, like Paul told Titus. And it wasn't in the same way it was with the Apostle Paul, but nevertheless, it happened. And we're confronted with our sin, and we're confronted with the condemnation of God. And then by the work of the Holy Spirit, we cry out to God for mercy, and we trust Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord, and we surrender and we submit to Him. God intervenes. He's the one who draws, and He's the one who keeps us. We don't wander away and get undrawn or unsaved. He keeps us because that is the will of God. And then He, at the last day, resurrects us, even our dead bodies. Uh, one day, He's going to fully redeem them. And this matters because if you think about Lazarus, 
being dead in the grave for those four days and the sisters being concerned that the smell was going to be terrible. It had been so long. Jesus stood in front of the tomb, commanded them to roll away the stone. And then he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out of the tomb. You say, well, what was he walking or something? I don't think so. Because immediately after that, Jesus says, now unbind him from the grave clothes. I don't think Lazarus could have done it if he wanted to. He was so bound up. How did he come out? It was the drawing power of Jesus Christ. And by the way, I, I like the old uh, saying that, you know why he had to say Lazarus? Because if all he had said is come forth, every dead person in the cemetery would have come out. But this was a particular call for a particular man at a particular time. And Lazarus came forth by the power of the Lord Jesus. And so when we think about all of this, why does this matter? Well, just as Lazarus could not come out of the tomb on his own power, neither can we come to Christ, even if we clearly hear the gospel call. It's got to be the power of God. And sanctification then is not only coming to Christ by his drawing, but now we've got to get the nasty, stinky, rotten grave clothes off, don't we? And that's your sanctification. Okay? Stay with me. Number four, we are saved and secured by the will of God. You know, uh, there are some people that I have talked to over the years who believe that you can lose your salvation. And that's a sad way to live. And they think that what we believe about the perseverance of the saints or security of the believer, whatever you want to call it, they think that that is just a nice little theory that we came up with so that we could live any way that we want to live. But actually, it's a biblical doctrine. We didn't just come up with that because we didn't like their idea. I get a little uh, amused at some people that they go to one church and they go, eh, I didn't really like that, so I'll go to another church until I find something that I like. Well, some people do that with their doctrine. And so they go to places, and if they don't like that doctrine, then they'll go to another place that teaches another doctrine, and then they'll go to another place that teaches another doctrine until they find something that kind of uh, meshes with them, it jives with them. And uh, what, what's wrong with that? Well, if you're hooking up with error, then that's never, ever good. You want to be tied down and lashed down to the Word of God. And the Word of God tells us in John chapter 6, starting at verse 38 through 40, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him, in other words, gets saved, should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Father's will is not, Jesus, you go down there and hopefully you'll get somebody. No, it was for Jesus to go down and pay the price for the lost sheep, to pay the price for those who would believe. And then the Father's will is not, now hold on to them and make sure that they hold on. We don't want to lose any of them. They're going to come. And Jesus said, the will is that I lose none of them. And then he makes a promise, I will raise them up 
on the last day. You see, the security that I have as a believer is, again, like everything else, it's not based upon me. It's not based upon me holding on to God and then him raising me up. It's based on him and the promises of the Father. If one Christian ever goes to hell, then Jesus' character is in question. He lied to us and he's not worthy of our trust, but he's not a liar. He told us the truth. And so Jesus focused on the Father's will and uh, we are love gifts from the Father to Jesus and we're not going to get eternal life. We actually have it now. And eternal life is not an extension of our old life. It's a brand new life. It is eternal, the life of God. And this matters because if you could lose your salvation, let me promise you, you would. When a baby is rescued and brought into new life and given a new name and adopted by loving parents, what do they do? Bring that child home and then say, okay, make sure you grow up. They don't do that because that child would be dead in no time if they left him alone and left him to his own resources. They don't do that. They stay with him. And that child is kept by the parents because if not, the child will lose its life. And in the same way, we are the ones who are indeed kept by the Lord. So when you think about the Lord in our helpless situation, he has all power, all love, all mercy, all grace, and we have nothing. And so he is the one that gives us the gifts of faith. And there's another place where uh, the early church, they rejoiced that the uh, Gentiles, pardon me, had been granted repentance. I mean, it all comes from God, doesn't it? And so don't think of it as God did his part. Now I've got to do my part. You don't have a part. You don't have a part in it. Uh, you were left out of that script if it were that way, if that were the correct way of looking at it. Here's the deal. He came and as the old hymn says, he sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. So think about who you are and think about that everything in you is a work of the Holy Spirit. And then think about that lost person that is so depraved as if there were degrees of depravity. And we look at them and say, oh, they're so far from God as if any of us were any closer to God. I mean, think about what we say. And then remember, remember, they are lost and damned for hell unless God intervenes. How does God intervene? Through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the work of his people. So be a seed planter, be a seed waterer. And by the grace of God, may you also be a seed harvester, but it all comes from God. That's the point of this lesson. That's a life-changing uh, attitude, by the way. So take it, embrace it, teach it, and may God use this lesson to bear much fruit in the hearts of his children and in his church. Thank you so much, and may the Lord bless you and enrich your life, and uh, I'm praying for you as you teach this lesson. Thank you.